0: If you have your Bibles, why don't you open them to Matthew chapter 5. We are returning to the Sermon on the Mount, a series that we've been working through. We're actually working through all the book of Matthew, Lord willing, uh, but we've been in the Sermon on the Mount for many uh, weeks, but we took a little break for Easter and uh, Palm Sunday and Easter, and we were in Hebrews, but we're back. And one of the things I really like about um, this, this kind of method of just working through the Bible, is that it brings us places that uh, we wouldn't normally go, right? We wouldn't, if it was up to me, I don't think I would come and preach a sermon on divorce, at least not very often, right? Not unless there was some pressing uh, issue that I needed to bring up about that. And and there isn't in that just, gen, you know, in a general sense in the church. We're, but where would we turn for truth if we didn't turn to the word. And you know, one of the reasons we do this is so that we hear the counsel of the Lord, the whole counsel on every subject. And so that's why we're here today uh, in, in Matthew chapter 5 verses 31 through 32. And it's good for us. I hope you'll see that today. Let's, let's read verses 31 through 32 together. It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So Father, we come before you this morning needing your help. Lord, I pray that the words that I share from your word would be truth spoken in love, not compromising on either. And that we would feel your grace. We would feel your love for us. We would understand some deep truths about marriage that have a great deal to do with our souls. I I pray that you would help us to leave here more confident in the gospel than when we came, trusting in you today. And Lord, if there are those who are hearing, either, either here present or listening online and feeling the weight of these words, I pray that they would also... Feel the grace of the gospel. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So um, the other day I was just walking around my house and I saw my wife's glasses. They were sitting on her dresser. And I decided to take my glasses off and put her glasses on because hers are Ray Ban and I think Ray Ban's a cool company, so I thought I'll just check but I I put these on and I start walking around and we have like really different prescriptions. You know what I mean? I won't say whose is worse, but boy. So, I'm, I'm walking around the house just trying these things on, and I'm running into door jams because I'm having a real d- difficulty judging distance. And I, I tried to, the stairs, and that was almost my undoing, you know, t- trying to go down the stairs. And, you know, maybe I, I don't see, I need glasses to see really well, but her glasses weren't the right ones for me. They weren't the right, they didn't help me to see. So, here's this great need of seeing, but those glasses weren't what did it for me. And it seemed to me that that is a good analogy for our moral vision. He's, for our moral vision, you know, like it's a good analogy. The glasses our society offers to us to wear, they're not really good. You know, we, we need help seeing, but it's not those glasses we need to put on. The, the, the glasses the world offers us. We don't naturally see well when it comes to morality. Our age, you know, this age that we live in and the fallenness of this world, sin, makes things hard to see. They've skewed things for us and to see things clearly, we need glasses and the world is quick to offer us a prescription, but they skew reality worse and they trip us up. Jesus teaching on the sermon in the Sermon on the Mount is just the right prescription. This is Jesus picking up on all the skewing of truth that was believed by even the religious leaders of the day, the people that that, that taught others. And he corrects it all and brings truth and morality into laser-sharp focus for us. The more I study the Sermon on the Mount, the more I see how incredibly helpful and relevant this is for us, for our day-to-day lives. If we put on these like glasses, we won't be running into door jams. We won't be tripping on stairs. Jesus helps us to navigate, to see as things really are. So... Wearing this passage, that's what I want us to do this morning. Put these on like to see marriage rightly. And you know what it'll do? It'll help us avoid a whole lot of hurt. A whole lot of brokenness. The massive tripping and falling of our society. People who try to navigate this life with a horribly wrong vision. Huge departure from the way God sees things and the way God has designed things. So I think it's super helpful. Verses 31 and 32 might seem like kind of random. Like, why does he go to divorce here? And by the way, you know, you think about why, we, why, why preach a sermon on divorce. I'm, I, I might even get an email about that. Why would you preach a sermon on divorce? In the greatest sermon ever written, ever spoken, divorce comes up right in the opening paragraphs. So that's why. Verses 31 and 32, they might seem random, but there's a connection here. If you look closely, you can trace the progression of Jesus' argument. It begins in verses 17 through 20, in which Jesus made it clear that the law was fulfilled in him, and he's come to fulfill the law. And verse 20 says that if we want to enter the kingdom of heaven, okay, this is powerful stuff here. If, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. If you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, you're going to need an exceeding righteousness. Right? And then Jesus begins to unravel the false righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. He begins to level it, to take it apart, to dismantle it, to expose it for what it really is. And where we end up in the Sermon on the Mount is understanding our desperate need for Christ's righteousness. The true righteousness, which actually exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. And so Jesus is unraveling false righteousness. He begins with murder and hate going below the false righteousness Righteousness of the Pharisees and of a lot of Christians who say things like, "Well, I've never killed anyone. I'm righteous," and he comes along and says, "No, it has to do with the heart, doesn't it? Heart level attitudes like hate, thoughts, words. That's what God requires. That's what God looks at." And then he moves to sexuality and marriage, and you can see that from verses twenty-seven to thirty-two. There are two. Massive ways that people undermine God's intent for sexuality and marriage. There are two of them that are mentioned here. And yet, they still would call themselves good, like people doing that undermining and still acting religious, still acting like they're doing all right, still saying they're Bible-believing Christians, as it were. Two ways of undermining. One is by obeying or believing that obedience is only required at the surface If you don't cheat on your spouse, you're fine. Jesus teaches us that lust undermines God's intent for sexuality and murder. Lust, thoughts. He makes it clear that sexual sin is in the heart, not just outward expression in the body, but the longings of the heart. If we're gonna fight sexual sin, you don't start with, like it's, you gotta start with the heart. That's where it begins. And the second big way we undermine God's intent with marriage and sexuality, which our passage is about today and the sermon is about, is by undervaluing the sanctity of marriage. Both in our text and in our world and even in our evangelical world, you know, with 42% divorce rate, we need this correction. I don't have to say much, I hope, about the substandard way the world views marriage right now. I hope you can see that. I hope you can see that. Marriage means very little to our society. It's under great attack, and with every passing year, there's some new departure from God's intent and design in marriage. The problem, though, is not out there in the world, it's not just out there in the world. Christians who might not buy the whole cake. You know what I mean? They might say, you know, we're we're not there. We know what marriage is. We know that it's between a man and a woman. We know that. But if divorce statistics are true, that I've looked up this week, certainly we still need to get a new prescription. Divorce is one massive way we have undervalued marriage and has led to so much suffering, so much brokenness, And it's not a new problem. It's not even an exclusively modern problem. The Pharisees and the scribes in Jesus' day were doing that. That's why it comes up here. This is what Jesus is needling into in these two verses. So let's let's pick up with their skewed vision of marriage, the Pharisees and the scribes. Their skewed vision of marriage, how they viewed it, and divorce and remarriage and adultery. And then we'll give an ear to Jesus' answer. And then as we wrap this up, we're going to make practical application to our lives. And I hope you will stay with me and track with me through this. Because this is actually really good for your souls. This begins like the other themes Jesus presses into with the phrase, It was said of old, but I say to you. or And other times he says, You have heard it said, but I say. And what he's doing there is he's not actually like, criticizing the old testament law that's not what jesus is doing here he's not he's not saying the law was wrong rather he is saying that the way that a lot of people view the law is wrong especially with this point point. and there's a principle uh, of bible study that i think is important here and that is that we should beware of bad proof texting do you know what i mean by bad proof texting that's our tendency to drop a verse from the Bible to support a view that the Bible might not teach. So, um, I mean, I hear it all the time, right? Like somebody lovingly calls some, a sin a sin and, and somebody else says, but Jesus says, don't judge. Yeah, he said that, he said that. But he didn't mean that you shouldn't call sin, sin. It's your proof text. Um, and this is what they were doing. I mean, we do, I, people do this all the time now, often in sermons. This, this is why we have to learn as Christians to read the Bible carefully and to take each sentence within its context, what it actually means, lest we use the Scriptures to prop up our own sin. You can, you can use the Bible to prop up your sin. You can't use it rightly to do that, but you can use it to do that. The saying of old has its proof text in Deuteronomy 24, 1-4. And I'd like to read that to show you how not to read your Bible, okay? So Deuteronomy 24, 1-4 says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if she then finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house and if she goes and becomes another man's wife... And the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house. Or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then the former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. That's an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring this sin upon the land of the Lord your God that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Now there's a lot in that, right? But if you if you read that and all you think is that if you have your paperwork in order, then divorce is fine, which is what the Pharisees were doing. You have a certificate of divorce. That means it's okay. Then you're not reading that rightly because, I mean, for one, the teaching has way more to do with forbidding a, a kind of remarriage um, that is forbidden in the law. That is, uh, you know, a, a guy divorces his wife. She goes and she's somebody else's wife. And... He dies or they divorce. These two can't be reunited. That's what that's teaching back in Deuteronomy. So it was not teaching that divorce itself was moral so long as there's a certificate. But the Pharisees seemed to hear only that. And I know that. Their thinking is, if you got your paperwork, you're good. Divorce is okay. You just need a certificate of divorce. And I know that they thought that because in Matthew 19, they bring it up and they actually say this. Okay, So, in that passage, Pharisees confront Jesus and what they're doing is they're trying to trap him with a question of, of, of divorce and remarriage. And so they, 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 they come and they ask him, is it lawful to divorce your wife for any cause? And they give away their proof text in Matthew 19, 7. They say, why then did Moses give her, say, give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? Why did Moses say that? So boom, divorce is fine. We have our proof text. Give her a certificate of divorce. But I think you can even see just by reading Deuteronomy 1 through 4 that that's not what Moses was teaching. Beware of bad proof texting. Don't be the one who handles the word of God so carelessly that you can even use the Bible to prop up and justify your sin, your departure from what God teaches. We might find ourselves missing the mark in a major way when it comes to important things, things like marriage. If we love the word of God, we should want to know what it really teaches and not twist it so that we can do what we want and still feel good. So let's press into what Jesus teaches about marriage in response to all that. I think it's helpful to just broaden this out a bit and really dig into layers here. It's kind of like um, the room I remodeled in our house. Uh, I peeled back one layer of uh, like wallpaper and you know what was under there? another layer of wallpaper. And then I pulled that back and you know what I found? Yeah, there's some layers there, but I got them all, I think. And then I put my own layer on. So some layers. The first layer in the Bible is is the Bible's teaching about marriage, that it's designed by God to make two people one. It's God's design. And there's a link in marriage that's spiritual, that's that's not just primarily legal. There is something that happens in marriage that goes way beyond the marriage certificate. And that is that God makes two people one. And that's the reason Jesus teaches that even if you have your, paper, your paperwork right, you have this legal divorce, you might still be committing adultery by remarrying after that divorce. If the old link that God made between you and your wife or you and your husband isn't truly broken... Then even if you can point to like legal state of Nebraska divorce papers, you're committing adultery by remarrying. That's what Jesus says in verse 32. And by the way, he says it twice. And the reason is because marriage is not primarily a legal issue. It's not primarily a paperwork issue. It's not just a piece of paper. As so many people have told me who want to belittle marriage. It's not that. It's way more. It's something that God does, and it goes right back to creation. Listen to Genesis 2 24 through 25. Here's, here's the, the origin of marriage. That verse says, A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, that one flesh union does not merely mean that they will join together physically when they consummate their marriage. It means that God joins the two together. And I know that because in Matthew 19, 6, Jesus quotes Genesis 2, 24. And he says, What therefore God has joined together. Do you see that? God joined the two together. Let not man separate. So the reason a marriage certificate is not just some piece of paper. And the reason why a marriage is not just by the power vested in me, like I say when I officiate. God doing it. God does this. And the reason why your divorce papers might not actually break the link to your ex is because marriage is at, the, at its essence an amazing thing that God does joining a man and woman together for life. That's the reality of marriage. Therefore, your divorce papers might just be a piece of paper if they're not in line with that reality. The, the point is that marriage is God's design and every time a, a, a man and a woman marry, there is something spiritual that happens from God. The two become one flesh and there's the act of God here. They, God joins them together. And this is true of believers and unbelievers. This is the reality of marriage and it's rooted in creation. And man does not have the right to tinker with that. A judge or a court or a church doesn't have the right to annul what God has joined together. A society, a a Congress, not even the Supreme Court of the United States has the right to tinker with what God has designed. It's above their pay grade, as it were. And neither does a husband or a wife. A husband going through a hard time and wanting to throw in the towel doesn't have the right to separate what God has joined together. This is above our pay grade. That's the first layer as we press into the amazing reality of marriage. God designed marriage. And it doesn't have its, primarily found, it doesn't have its primary foundation in the laws of man. But in the laws of God. Uh, you know, it's perfectly right, of course, to have laws that reflect that reality. It's right that, that we codify things in our law. So long as we do not depart from God's law. And when our laws, like the society's laws, depart from God's laws, they're not valid. They're not to be followed. The U.S. Supreme Court massively overstepped its jurisdiction in so many ways with their extremely flawed Obergefell decision in 2015. Obergefell. When they essentially redefined marriage, they had no right. They had no right. And that law is not valid before God. Neither, for that matter, is Nebraska's no-fault divorce laws. Now, you could be wondering why God cares so much about marriage that he'd actually bring it up in the Sermon on the Mount. Why does he care so much about this? Why is this such a big deal? And that's kind of the next layer I want to go to. God cares a lot about the permanence of marriage. And the reason he does is because God is a covenant-keeping God And he wants his people, who are image bearers of God, to be covenant-keeping people. And I get that from a few different places, but Malachi 2, 13-16 says almost that, exactly. And the second thing you do, he's indicting Israel for their departures. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because there's no longer regards for the offering, or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does, why does he not? Why doesn't God accept this? Because the Lord has a witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless. Though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking, godly offspring? So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Uh, Again, this is part of God's indictment against Israel for their covenant breaking. And right at the heart of that is divorce. They were merely treating marriage flippantly as if it were just a piece of paper, not something God has instituted and that man has no right to tinker with. That man has some right to regard as less than sacred. God takes covenants very seriously and we should be so thankful for that, right? I mean, there's a a great reason why you ought to be thankful that God takes his covenants seriously. He does not divorce his people. He's never faithless to us. He, he, never, he never forsakes us. And so for man to be faithless to his wife or a wife to be faithless to her husband and divorce him or her is offensive to God. So much so that Malachi, in Malachi, God said that he will no longer regard their worship. This flippant approach to marriage and this rampant divorce is what was thwarting their worship. It's not a small thing to God. He is a faithful God and he demands as image bearers that we be faithful. So let's keep pressing because there's another layer here. It's connected. And that is that marriage refers to the greatest covenant that God has ever made with his people. The covenant that God has made with his people. The reason God is so insistent on this Temporary permanence, and I'll explain that term in a moment. This temporary permanence of marriage is because marriage is meant to be an image of the gospel. I know this because Paul famously said almost exactly that in Ephesians 5.32. Ephesians 5.32 says, this mystery, the the, the mystery of marriage is profound. And I am saying that it, that marriage, refers to Christ and the church. I hear that, my friends, Marriage refers to Christ and the church. Marriage refers to the gospel. At nearly every wedding I officiate at, I, I challenge the couples to view their marriage that way, the way that God does, so that their marriage would be an accurate picture of the image, of the re, an accurate picture of the relationship between God and his people, between Christ and his church. Marriage is like a, like a mirror reflecting that great image, and we want that reflection to be clear so that people will see the greatest reality ever. Which marriage is intended to reflect, and that is that God has so loved this world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus Christ died for his bride, and there is an eternal covenant between him and his bride, the church, and Jesus will never divorce his bride, ever. He'll never leave her. He loves and continues with and will always continue with his bride. So like we have, that's a a permanent thing. We have this temporary permanent relationship that reflects that everlasting thing. I say temporary because like how the old vows go, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in health and in sickness, until death do you part. There's, there's an end to this. Marriage is not forever. There's an end. It's temporary in a sense, but it's permanent in the sense that it doesn't end while you both live. It's like the vows go, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, for better, for worse until death do you part. Marriage refers to the Christ-church relationship. Christ never divorces his bride. His is permanent. Like, this is where the picture of marriage actually doesn't, like, clearly reflect the image. There's a temporariness to it, right? Christ's covenant with his people is eternal. It's everlasting. It never ends. It conquers death for all of eternity. Therefore, When a man and a woman divorce, they skew their image. They skew the image that their union was meant to reflect. You know, like those apps on your phone that take your picture and then either make you look older or younger or like give you a different skin tone or whatever, change you somehow in a a great way. Divorce distorts the image that marriage is intended to display. No wonder the world is at war, by the way, with marriage. This, this makes me understand why the world hates marriage. You know why they hate marriage? They hate Christ. They hate the, the image that marriage is intended to display. And so there's an all-out war by the world, the flesh, and the devil against marriage. Marriage. God designed marriage and gifted it to us and he intends marriage to end with death. God is a covenant-keeping God and his people must be covenant-keeping people. And marriage refers to the gospel and divorce so obscures that reference that we can't even recognize the image that it was meant to reflect. Those are the lenses through which we should see marriage and divorce. Now Jesus offers an exception here. Verse 32, he uses the word accept. That means there's an exception. It's the plainest way to understand that. And so we should go there. We, should, we want to be thoroughly biblical in our understanding of marriage. And by the way, Paul, which we're going to go to as well, inspired by the Holy Spirit, also gives an exception. So there are, according to the scriptures, rare exceptional circumstances that make a divorce not sinful for one of the parties in that divorce. And that that divorce genuinely breaks the link. So let's look at those. Verse 32 says that this is Jesus, except on the grounds of sexual immorality. And I take that to mean just exactly what it seems to plainly mean. That is that if a wife or a husband is unfaithful sexually to his or her spouse, then the innocent spouse can be free from that union, can be free from that union. They're not responsible for the dissolution of the marriage. The adulterer is. The sin of the divorce, divorce is always sinful. But the sin of this divorce would be on the one who is unfaithful to their vows. And in that way, the link is actually broken and the innocent party can be free from that bond. And I say can be, and I've said that a couple of times because I don't, I don't think Jesus means that they have to be. They can be. The innocent spouse can choose to forgive and can choose to remain in the marriage. I've seen many marriages survive and go on to thrive, albeit with a very real scar after infidelity. They can stay together. There's there's a real exception that Jesus supplies here though. The innocent spouse can be free from the bond because their spouse broke the covenant and they are not sinful in that. So in that exceptional circumstance, remarriage, I think, must also be allowed for the innocent spouse. It seems to me, the way that grammar works, that the exception covers both the divorce and the remarriage. And if that genuine link is broken, then remarriage is not sinful. So I don't believe that it is sinful for the innocent party to eventually remarry. So that's one exception. The other is provided by Paul in 1 Corinthians 7.15. And in this case, it's the believing wife with an unbelieving husband. And it goes both ways because of the way he uses the word brothers and sisters in in this verse. But um, if the husband abandons his wife, she's no longer bound to the union. So 1 Corinthians 7.15 says, but if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. And the phrase, not enslaved, not bound, could be translated not bound, it, it makes me think, believe that Paul is teaching that she is free from the bond because she has been abandoned or he has been abandoned. Abandonment is, therefore, an exception. And the, the abandoned spouse is not sinful in that divorce. An abandoned spouse is free from the bond. The divorce is not sin for them. Again, all, sin, all divorce is Sinful. But in this exception, it's not sinful for the one abandoned. And, you know, I do think that the word abandonment needs some definition, some thoughtfulness applied to it. I think that there, you know, you can just think of it as just on the surface level, one person leaves the domicile, one person leaves the house. And that, that is that, but it could be other things too. I think that uh, a spouse can treat his or her spouse so badly, abusively, That even though they might continue to live under the same roof, the spouse has in effect separated. They've treated the other one so badly that the other one doesn't even feel at home. Abuse could rise to the level of abandonment, even though they might not have moved out yet. And in those kinds of circumstances, I think this may apply. So I see two exceptions in the Bible to the lifelong permanence of marriage. It is sin to divorce one's spouse with the exception of these two circumstances, I believe. And I think the scriptures bear that out. Jesus in verse 32, again, he used the word accept. These are exceptions. The rule is that marriage is for life. Pharisees wanted divorce to be easy and in some ways they wanted it to be the rule. Because marriage is hard, right? When it gets hard, it's easy to... Quit, but God intends for marriage to be for life and he permits divorce in some very exceptional circumstances. God intended it that way from the beginning, from the garden of Eden. So this is not rooted in culture. It doesn't like depend on a cultural moment or a statute of laws. This is a creation order thing. At the dawn of creation, God is a covenant keeping God and he wants his people made in his image to be covenant keeping people. And marriage reflects the greatest covenant that God has made with man through Christ. That of God's grace and his mercy and his commitment poured out on his people in love forever, for all of eternity. Friends, that is the prescription we need for marriage to rightly view the institution of marriage. Now let me say four final things this morning and give you hope where you are at. First, if you're divorced and you feel the weight of this, let me encourage you with the gospel. Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay for the sin of divorce and adultery and all other sin that you may commit against him. Your divorce... As painful as it is and as shameful as it makes you feel, it does not put you outside of God's grace. If you have a sinful divorce in your past, and you know, you know that you were sinful in that, my word to you is simply repent, own it, see marriage the way that God sees it, and turn to Christ by faith. Feeling the forgiveness, you know, you do not need to be condemned by it. You do not need to be condemned by it. Jesus bore your condemnation on the cross and if you are in Christ by faith, there is therefore no condemnation. Turn to him by faith. He has taken our condemnation. Second, if you're married and you hear these words and you know that your marriage is challenging and you, I want to encourage you to be faithful to your spouse no matter how hard it is. And to cherish your spouse and to see your spouse as a gift from God to you. See your marriage as one that is intended to reflect the incredible reality of the gospel and work in your marriage so that you accurately reflect that image. The Christ-Church relationship. Christ loving and sacrificing for his bride. And the bride respecting the Son. Third, if you're married and it's going very hard, I want to encourage you to simply take divorce completely off the table. Take it off the table. And then seek godly and wise help. There are many here who understand how difficult marriage can be. And often is, and we're here to help you work through your issues and heal from your hurt and grow to a place of flourishing in your marriage. There is counseling available. And I have seen couples who are right on the brink of divorce, like no hope left. Like it's done. I'm throwing in the towel. And I've seen them years later say, By the grace of God, I love my wife more than ever. Same woman. There is help. You can get through this season. I do a ton of marriage counseling every single week. I'm available if you're having a struggle in your marriage. And there are others here who do that as well. They are available. Reach out to me. Reach out to an elder. We'll help you stay and honor your marriage and learn to love your spouse. You know, we're in this together, friends. We're in this together. Part of the reason we are at church is to have each other's backs. And part of having each other's backs is having each other's backs in marriage. We're here to help you, to support you, to encourage you, to love your spouse. And finally, friends, you should love this truth and the truth behind the reality of marriage. You should read this and love this truth. You know why? You you should love the truth that God commands you to stay. You know why? Because the reality behind that truth is we know a God who stays. And I I want you to hear that if you have been abandoned. God will never abandon you like that. God will never abandon you. God stays. Friends go, spouses sometimes go. God stays. Never forsakes us. Not even when you feel forsaken, He never forsakes us. God is a God who stays. And marriage is a picture of that. And so you should love this truth. You should love marriage. You should hate divorce. Marriage is a picture of a God who is faithful forever and who will never forsake us. And I am so glad of that reality. Because in that, I know that though I am a sinner, a great sinner, God will never leave me in Christ. And if you're in Christ, you're that secure. Father, I pray that this truth will ring home in our hearts and that we would push back against the world's faulty, skewed understanding of marriage. And we would love the institution that you have created for our flourishing. And we would obey it. And Lord, I pray for any who are here hurting this morning. And I pray that you would lead them to a place of real help in their marriage, real healing. I know you can do that. I've seen you do that. And I pray that you would do that by your grace. And Lord, I pray for any who have come here not totally resolved to love the wife of their youth or love the husband of their youth. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen those marriages today that they would set their face like a flint to reflect the reality that you are a God who stays. In Jesus' name, amen.